Welcome to the world according to Boyer, where we bring top investors, best-selling authors, and market newsmakers to show you the smartest ways to uncover value in the stock market. I'm your host, Jonathan Boyer. Today's special guest, Mario Gabelli, is a man who truly needs no introduction. After working at Loeb Rhodes and William Witter, he formed his own firm, Gabelli & Company, in 1976. Today is one of Wall Street's best-known investors and is publicly traded firm Gamco Investors manages over $40 billion, utilizing primarily his private market value with a catalyst strategy. Today's interview is especially exciting for me as Mario was my first boss after graduating from college. Mario, welcome to the show. Well, terrific to be on the program. And obviously, I know the Boyer family for probably close to 45 years. We used to have lunches in the 70s when there were very few of us around, 1970s, <laughs> before somebody says 18 or 1670s. I wasn't going to make that joke. So, uh, Mario, you left a high-paying job at a well-respected Loeb Rhodes, worked briefly at William Witter, and then went off on your own. At the time, the economy was awful. Negotiated rates had ended. You had young children. What were you thinking? Was I thinking? The answer is I thought it was a great time to be buying stocks, John. And prior to that, for 10 years as a sell site analyst, I covered a variety of industries. I graduated from local business school here at Columbia, and I went to work on a Monday. Mike Steinhardt quit on a Friday, and I picked up his industries, which were autos, farm equipment, and conglomerates. And then fast forward a year or two later, I was assigned business services, and I picked up the entertainment industry. You know, and I was able to go through the environment of 1969-70, which was somewhat nasty, but quick and came out with some fairly easy stocks. And I knew that I could select stocks in the 73-4 economic downturn. So the question was, would I have enough money to be in business? So I tried to raise a million dollars. I was only lucky enough to raise 200,000. And I set off and I said, look, at some point money follows returns. And if I could make returns for clients risk adjusted, we basically uh, hopefully uh, will be okay. We started as an institutional self-site firm. I got companies like General Motors and three or four other companies to actually buy my research for cash, which paid for my, some of the uh, expenses. And we had some institutional clients. And then within a month or so, uh, I picked up my first money managed account. I want to talk a little bit about your process. So if a client walks in the door today at GAMPGO, puts no restrictions, says invest in whatever you think is your best stocks, you know, what would be the ideal number of holdings you would buy for him or her? we would start asking some simple questions. Have they been in the market before? Uh, did you go through a period like 1987? Did you go through a period like 2000? Did you go through a period like 2008 or nine? What happened to you if you were in the market in the February of 2009? How long is your time frame? Uh, what percentage of your assets? So depending on those answers, we could generally construct a portfolio that have 10 stocks that would represent a quarter of the portfolio and probably 70 or 80 representing the balance. And that doesn't matter, John, if they give me a, a million dollars or a hundred million dollars. We would uh, try to customize. Secondly, if it's an IRA account, we would want to know that or a 401k or a defined benefit or a tax-free because we tend to hold things for six, seven or eight years. But occasionally, you know, we look at the determining whether it's you know, it's not only what you make, it's what you keep. And in an environment where if a client comes in from California or New York City, where they're taking 13% of his earnings, if it's short-term gains uh, that are non-deductible because of salt taxes, you know, we want to be extra sensitive to all of that. 
that leads a perfect segue to my next question. For us in the you know, 2009 period, we bought companies like MSG, Home Depot for clients. They were great stocks, still are great stocks, but because of capital appreciation, they're now an outsized part of the portfolio, sometimes seven, eight percent. How do you handle situations like that? Yeah, you know, we have a nosebleed. No matter how good we are, there's always some dynamic that you don't know about for some Buddy will come down and do something that says, okay, whoa, the stock can, uh, at 8% of the portfolio, we say we want to trim it back. Our basic approach, we're generally, not for everyone, uh, we would look at something that exceeds 5 or 6% and sell a couple of hundred shares. So if you own 2,000 shares of uh, Home Depot and it's now 200 and you bought it at 15, you know, we apologize, but we're going to make you pay tax because we don't want to own that much in the portfolio. It's patriotic. So it, it's tough. It, unfortunately, the real estate lobby has been very good at doing exchanges, Section 1031. But what is more hideous to the system and to the investor and to the owner of American business is the notion that Company A buys Company B and it's a taxable transaction and you have no choice and you have to incur a very sizable gain. Okay, we had that like with Precision Cast Parts when Warren Buffett. We're not unhappy with the price. We're unhappy with the fact that we're going to pay a toll tax of reinvestment. So at some point, there's financial illiterates that want to mark to market and tax you on mark to market gains. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have to incur a tax for taxable accounts. For tax-free accounts, Jonathan, the answer is fairly simple. We just sell it. Sometimes you have stocks that are extremely undervalued, may go down 20, 30% in a day due to a reason that's you know, temporary, just a bump in the road. How do you handle that? Do you buy immediately? Do you wait for things to settle down to avoid catching a falling knife? How does that work? Well, that's an interesting question as well. In theory, then generally, for most of the stocks we follow, we have, you know, today we have 40 analysts. We didn't have 40 analysts 45 years ago. We had one or 50 years ago when we started. They basically, uh, the analysts prepare a spreadsheet. They gathered the data, rate the data the way we want and in the value side of the house and not necessarily in other parts of our firm. We try to figure out, and this is for about 80% or 90% of what we do. What is the value of the business over time? And when Mr. Market, that is the volatility in the market, sends it up sharply or sharply down relative to what we think, we uh, go through the positions for new clients. We'd probably start adding some because we'll never catch why. You know, right now, a good example, John, is the Max 737. There are vendors to Boeing. Four months ago, they said, ramp it up. We're going up to X number of planes per day. Today, they ramped it back down to 42, and they're building up their pipeline. So the vendors to Boeing would have an air pocket, and that would cause some of them to have a second quarter decline. Can we look through that? Do we anticipate that? Are the street going to say, you know, the short-term Momo and Algo investors going to handle that? When they uh, generally announce an uninspiring quarter, the stock's down to 10, 15%. Yes, we take a lot of dots into consideration and we look at that. However, there are time periods like the end of the fourth quarter where you had significant tax selling. You had significant momentum investors that just pounded on stocks that were going down. There's no uptick rule. The third thing is that they didn't want to show that they owned it. So that gave us a significant buying opportunity, one of which was a stock that had dropped from 18 to 4 or 2, debold, and it's back to 12 or 13. So what we would do is try to anticipate that 
in taxable accounts, we'd sell, we'd buy it back and we'd buy it in early November, sell it in early December or vice versa, sell it in November uh, and then buy it back in December to take advantage of what we knew was an invariable, uh, in quotes, classic tax selling and window dressing. This is a daily focused, client specific passion. And then you got to know the stocks and then you got to know the clients. If someone does come to you and you feel that it's a good client for you, how long does it take for them to become fully invested? Even if you start with a dollar or a hundred dollars, we probably will take anywhere from 60 to 90 days, even though our mantra is to be fully invested in equities. You know, it's like going to uh, the hospital for special surgery in New York for a knee operation. You go there because you know there's a lot of issues that can come up independent of the function and you want, you pick a specialist organization. I'm, and we're specialists and we just do stocks. We don't do wealth management for clients. So it's unlikely that they'd be fully invested within 60 or 90 days. At least it would take 60 to 90 days to do it. In the late 90s, you decided to take Gamco public. Do you regret doing this? Well, let's go back. I started the firm in 1977. As I indicated to you, I uh, tried to raise a million dollars or I was successful in raising 200,000. One chap who went to Columbia with me gave me 25,000. He was also, you know, uh, still an investor today. Another chap who was the CEO of a public company gave me X dollars. But we had a lot of teammates. As people joined us, we gave them stock. And we always bought or sold at stock, which was the way the Wall Streets were. And, you know, like a partner at Goldman Sachs, you buy a book, sell a book, but you get paid out at different time periods. Fast forward in 1999 or 1998, several of my colleagues said, listen, we hard to believe, but they said we want to retire, which is something strange in my world. But basically, uh, they said, well, you know, you have a moral obligation. And I agreed. So we took it public. But what happened subsequent to that, and we went public at 1750 through Merrill Lynch and Smith Barney, both of which are now part of other organizations. And our stock dropped to 15 and a half. And within three weeks, we said we'd buy some, which was not consistent with the companies going public. But fast forward, we then had Enron, WorldCom. And obviously, uh, that resulted in stock, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, Section 302, I believe. Uh, and that has put a significant cost not only in terms of money, which is maintained at a high cost, but in terms of time and when our board meetings meet, we're checking boxes as opposed to saying, let's do the following acquisition or let's do the following new product. We're doing that, but we don't divert as much time. So it really has proven to be a challenge in going public for that reason. Clearly, uh, there were benefits. Our teammates got uh, fair market value uh, at the time, not necessarily full market value. And that was the morally right thing to do because they were going to retire. Would I do it today? Probably not, unless the rules change with regards to the cost structure of being public. I hope you've been enjoying the interview with Mario Gabelli. To be sure you never miss another episode of The World According to Boyer, please follow us on Twitter at Boyer Value. Now, back to the show. You've done some, I guess, financial engineering. You spun out a few of your businesses, Teton, and as well as your brokerage business. What were the rationale behind that? Well, Teton was a unique set of circumstances. And back in 1976, when I, you indicated I was at William D. Witter, Sue Byrne was a portfolio strategist. 
She took on the responsibility of managing several other companies. She started a group of funds called Westwood. And in the early 1990s, she moved to Dallas and sold her company to a firm down in Dallas. They did not want the mutual funds. I said, okay, why don't we take on the responsibility of administrating your funds? You guys manage them. You become sub-advisors and you'll own 35% of the funds. Fast forward, she then went public. We owned 18% of her company called Westwood. Holdings. Uh, she's done a fabulous job, but they didn't want to be in the mutual fund business. So we created an entity called Teton because we we're in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, when we came up with the name and we spun it off to the shareholders. And they uh, decided to uh, sell their holdings in Teton and it gave them a liquidity that they made a lot of money on it and uh, it worked well. And we sent it to the shareholders and the stock has done uh, reasonably well since then. With regards to the spinoff of Associated Capital, uh, we were in the uh, private equity business in the early 80s. It was Gabelli Rosenthal, Jimmy Rosenthal, Rosenthal and Rosenthal, well-known factors in New York. And we also brought in Needham and Company as a partner at one time. But the period was characterized by companies that would say, for 10 cents and a dollar in equity, uh, we can borrow the balance of the money you have through Drexel Burnham and we'll take you over. So we made a decision to not be in the private equity, but in the public markets. And when we spun off Associated three and a half years ago, we're going full-fledged back into the private equity market, doing it on fundless equities. And so those were all tied together. But beyond that, John, I'm the CEO of a public company in the telephone business called Lynch Corp. And I think we've done 36 acquisitions and about 10 or so spinoffs. So understanding financial engineering is all part of what we do, and it's part of our culture with regards to arbitrage and part of our culture with regards to following companies. So it's a way to make money for clients. It's a way to make money for shareholders, and that's the way we do it. Well, speaking of financial engineering, the master of that, besides you, of course, is Dr. Malone, and you've made a lot of money investing alongside of him. Do you see anyone who might be the next Malone? Well, the current Malone... You know, it's like Tiger Woods. The next Tiger Woods is Tiger Woods. I mean, to bring back golf, for example, on Sunday, everybody was saying, whoa, why is this sport declining? We need another Tiger Woods. Well, Tiger Woods did it. And so within the framework of what Malone is doing, every day is a new opportunity. For example, yesterday with Barry Diller, John Malone and Barry Diller cut a deal with Liberty Expedia, emerging into Expedia and a lot of financial engineering. You know, we don't like some of the things that occurred. We don't like the fact that Barry Diller was allowed to get 100% of his stock in equity in voting stock and everybody else didn't. But on the 90% that takes place, Barry makes a lot of money for shareholders. John Malone has. And so we look at the Malone empire and it's significant. And Chris Morangi and our team have a mutual fund that just started as a carry on to what we did to invest in the media mogul that we call them independent of that, don't ignore that Warren Buffett still is very good at financial engineering. On the other side of the coin, this guy, Ed Breeden, who is running DuPont, who's in our Hall of Fame, has done a fantastic job in everything he's touched, whether taking on the Kozlowski empire or doing, and by the way, he put together a lot of very good businesses. Basically looking at that and then spinning some off, merging some, and now doing it with DuPont and Dow. So uh, he would be high on the list, and uh, he's not the only one. In terms of Malone, one of our holdings, and I believe you own it too, is Discovery Communications. You know, what do you think the end game is on it? I mean, Malone said he's going to sell it over his dead body. I don't think it's going to go that far, but how does this story end? 
Well, I'm not sure it ends. I think Zasloff has done a very good job of putting together, as best as he can, content on a global basis. And what works? Sports and news, live entertainment. And so the package he's put together in Europe is very intriguing to us. Clearly, uh, you want to go direct to the consumer in the new world. And what product can you entice? What product can you package? The fact that they bought the Scripps Network, putting together those companies, both domestically and outside the United States, that's a start. Is the stock undervalued relative to the numbers? Yeah, and it's a show and tell. I mean, show and then tell what you've done. And uh, we're probably uh, a year away from where even more of the good news will come out. But it's got to still be proven that he can continue the momentum that he's created. Now, do I buy content for him? Uh, you know, there's a lot of pluses. Uh, you saw the benefit of Disney buying Fox, and you saw the benefit of Fox shareholders about having Disney buy it. I mean, this has been a win-win for the Murdoch Enterprises. The new Fox is being traded today. Uh, what is Zafsoff going to do to get more content? How is he going to do it globally? And how does he accelerate going to the consumers? So we own the stock. We like what he's doing. We've owned a lot of Scripps Network. Ken Lowe did a terrific job for the family at uh, Scripps. Zafsoff will do it for Malone. Do you see him ever potentially selling to Disney? Uh, look, Iger has gone in two years. I don't know who will succeed Iger. The Murdoch family becomes the largest active shareholder. The rest are mindless investors like Blackstone and like Vanguard and like State Street and like Invesco and like DFA. Those don't think about what they're doing. With the Murdoch family owning 100 million shares of the 1.7 billion, they have a very active role. With uh, Discovery sell to Disney, I just don't see why Iger would want to distract what his focus on at the moment in terms of buying uh, Discovery. Clearly, he'd have to wait till he integrated Fox. And he said he's going to retire, but he said that a few times already. Yeah, uh, but you know what? He ain't yeah. Rupert, okay? He ain't Buffett. I mean, you know, these guys control the vote. He doesn't control the vote. Yeah. From my point of view, I followed Iger since he was a rookie a broadcaster with uh, Murph and Burke at Cap Cities. And they worked with their way from Cap Cities to ABC, and then they sold ABC to uh, Disney. And that's got to end uh, Eisner bought it, and then Iger took over and has done a fantastic job. So, you know, we've been watching Disney's 50 years now. I actually wrote a report on Cinderella every seven years, how it would recycle itself. But I think Disney will do quite well in this environment for the next 10 years. But I don't think they'll do it with Discovery over the next five. You'll need another mate, John, for Discovery. Uh, uh, well, they will put something else in the pot, but I don't know what it is. A family-controlled company that we own that you it's one of your largest holdings. Uh, don't do that to me. Madison Square Garden. I knew where you were going as soon as you said that. You know, they're spinning out the team from the entertainment, which I think is a good idea. What does he do with the Knicks and the Rangers? I'm assuming that financial engineering, as you go back to Cablevision, Chuck Dolan and Jimmy were doing it, and they try to go private. For whatever reason, it didn't work, and I think I know the reasons. The second thing that happened is they spun off, or I can't remember the date, AMC Networks. That stock has done very well on the Josh Sapan. The third thing they did was MSG Networks. So AMC is The Walking Dead and so on. Breaking Bad, very creative, very important content in the world in which content and the assembly of writers, the assembly of talent and scripts and greenlighting them in a cost-effective way are important. They've done a marvelous job. MSG Networks is clearly waiting for whatever happens to the networks that Disney has bought in part through Fox, the regional sports networks, the RSNs, they call them. 
who's going to buy them and what price they're going to pay. And MSGN is controlled by the Dolan family. And that question is up for grabs. Then we obviously have Madison Square Garden. We have a, a bunch of very interesting assets. It sells around $300 a share with around 22 million shares, but 24 million shares. And they are spinning off the sports networks. However, they filed the form 10 on a quiet basis, I believe, maybe back in October, November. I just have not seen what they're doing next. And what do they do next? The good news is the Knicks are number one this sports season. They took first place in being last place. And so they can obviously have a seat at the table on trying to get some talent. And we'll see. Independent of their record, John, Forbes magazine just bumped up again what they thought the valuation was. So live entertainment, of which sports is number one, an ability to own a basketball team, an ability to own a hockey team, is kind of intriguing to uh, anyone that wants to own a company. So we'll see what they do and how much debt they put on, if any, and when they spin it off. And legalized sports gambling has to help a lot. Well, if you watch Tiger Woods and you were betting on the last two holes in live real time, you know, and unfortunately... uh, the guy on the 12th hole who hit the ball in the water and was in the lead until then. And there is an element in which the leagues will share in the revenues. And there is an element that says this is going to occur. Clearly, they go out of their way to talk about this guy to bet $65,000 or whatever the number was at X number of odds on Tiger Woods. You know, they're going to be a fan duel and all of those will come back. We'll see. I understand the technology of gambling. We have companies that are betting on or having been involved with companies like GVC in London on, uh, you know, we own MGM. There's an element that can help. We'll see. Uh, Who gets what, though? It's still an allocation of revenues to the leagues and the teams. So I just have one last question. You've accomplished pretty much everything there is to accomplish in the money management business. You don't need to be doing this. What makes you come to work each day? Come on, this is annual report time. We get 40 annual reports come in. Going through the CEO letters, I can't read as many as I used to. By the way, I can't even carry them anymore. So uh, there's 40 of them, and you go through the ones you want, and you get an idea. Listen, this is fantastic. The business of uh, looking at how managements look at themselves, how companies pride themselves, and then you open an annual report of a company I've been following, and all of a sudden there's a full-page picture of the CEO. And I'm saying to myself, what? You know, so how does change take place? And how do companies evolve? And how does management send you signals about what they're going to do in the next phase of the business career? And how do you anticipate not only the fundamentals of a company, how do they build up the moats? How do they use cash flow? What's going on in corporate governance? And then every so often you get new things like ESG. And this is exciting. And I've I'm lucky uh, to be in this business, and I think I can do it for a long time. By the way, remember one thing. When I, Tubby Burnham, John Loeb, and I can go on, Corey, uh, and uh, other legends of the investment business, I went to a meeting one time uh, in New York at the Harmony Club, and I was 45 years old, and these guys were 75. And they lived another 30 years investing. So just think about that. Owning a piece of America, owning a piece of the capitalistic system with all the flaws that we see, it's a delight. So Jonathan, I'm just starting. And as uh, somebody would sing, it's the uh, best is yet to come. And you just wrote, along with Kate Welling, a great book, Merger Masters. Well, Uh, she, she was my inspiration. I convinced her to do it. She was my editor and baron. She can take complicated ideas and put them into simple language for people on anywhere in the world to understand. She's great. 
Well, Mario, thank you for your time. I look forward to seeing you in Omaha and hopefully we can have one of these uh, launches like you did in the 70s. We'd be delighted to do it anytime. See you in Omaha. Take care. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the show. To receive a Boyer Research Report on Discovery Communications and Madison Square Garden, please email info at boyervaluegroup.com. Until next time.